This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the fallout, the reaction to the 2030 Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games bid. The provincial government saying yesterday it won't support that bid. And there are some disappointed people out there, including our next guest, Wayne Sparrow, who is chief of Musqueam and joins us now. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you. Listen, I, I heard you talking about this yesterday. Like, how did you find out about the, what the province was saying? Well, we found out on Tuesday, we got a uh, phone call and um, asked to go on Zoom, a Zoom call with Minister Bear, uh, um, informing us that they came to this uh, decision um, and we were uh, quite caught off guard by it. Um, we thought that the preliminary discussions and asking for us to go and do the work and uh, get the uh, feasibility study done and the concept design done about how the games would take place and then to be told on Tuesday um, that uh, they came to the decision was uh, upsetting and surprising. Um, and, uh, you know, so it just it led to one thing. And then we asked for a meeting to be held uh, with all parties uh, before to look at all the concerns um, that were coming from the province and also from the feds and the municipalities, and finally get everybody in the room together to review the whole proposals, and uh, that never took place. Hmm. What were the concerns that they shared with you? What were they saying? Well, they were just saying an understanding, uh, 100% understanding, the, you know, the, the priorities with the province, of the, with the affordable housing, the opioid uh, crisis that are going on. And they it, it said it, it didn't align with their uh, priorities. The big question I asked them is I really want to ask the province where reconciliation lies with their priorities. Um, it, uh, you know, uh, they've, the governments are always saying that reconciliation is one of their main priorities. And, you know, we know that we're not always going to get what we want, but um, we're really looking for the respect to have the dialogue and the communication with the government before they can make these decisions. Right. That's but, part of reconciliation for me. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about then, Wayne. So do you feel that the part, because everybody keeps saying this was about reconciliation. So was it about the dialogue? It's about at least talk to us about this before you come to that decision? Absolutely. Um, you know, um, that's what I said to uh, the minister on Tuesday, that I was very upset. And I think that we took big steps backwards on reconciliation because, you know, uh, being involved with um, with our community and being involved with the governments, um, that word's thrown around quite often, reconciliation. Right. But there's got to be actions behind it and also respect behind it from government to government. And I, I, uh, I just don't see that. Would you have understood it more or would it, would it be easier, I guess, for you to take if there had been that process, if there had been those meetings and you had heard all of that sort of at these face-to-face meetings? Yeah, I think, I think the, the conclusion was already there uh, with the provincial government by listening to the minister talk yesterday. The thing that upset me is why let us do all this work, let us go down this path. And then with the, they, already, they already knew what they were going to do, um, you know, uh, 
um, Minister Bear said on, on on the news yesterday, it wasn't the right time. Well, it wasn't the right time. Tell us. You know, don't let us do all this work and then turn around and say it's not the right time and it doesn't fit their priorities. Right. Where, so where, along, where in the process were you? Like, how, what were you working on at this point? Well, at, at the very beginning, we, um, at the beginning of the process, we signed an MOU with, with the City of Vancouver and Municipality of Whistler. Then we carried on to an MOU with the uh, Canadian Olympic Committee and Paralympic Committee. And then the concept design was done. And then the uh, feasibility study was done. And we passed it on to um, all uh, arms of government, municipality, federal and provincial. Um, and that's what they responded to yesterday. There was no dialogue or communication or clarification of the, of the budget or proposed budget. It was just an announcement. So we were a little bit caught off guard. That's why I was saying that we thought that once the government's got it in their hands, that they would sit down in a room and uh, if they weren't comfortable about where uh, other expenditures could go or what their priorities were, with, and, including talking about um, transit, ho- uh, affordable housing with some of the uh, properties the nations have. So that's why that never took place. So right. um, they just came over and said that they're not doing it, so it's kind of squashed everything. Right. So did you feel that even with that feasibility study and what you, the work that's done so far, that there was some room for negotiation here? There was room for things to talk about? I think so. I think, you know, like uh, I requested on Tuesday that, that all parties get in the room before this announcement came out to see uh, who knows, maybe the maybe the feds might have put in, maybe the city would put in. We I talked to the new mayor and um, talked to him about getting a meeting set up right away and then uh, talked to our, our previous mayor and they were all willing to uh, sit down, but the uh, province did what they did. Now, so what happens now then, Wayne? Is this it? I think it's pretty well it. Um, you know, we uh, we thought the big fight was uh, with the city, um, with the plebiscite and uh, city council. Once we got by that, by hearing that, that we thought uh, that the governments would be on board. So that's why we were a little bit caught off guard. So uh, okay. who knows? Um, the only way uh, uh, we're having a meeting today, there's a press conference today with the, with the nations, but uh, we'll talk with our leadership down there and then uh, talk with the Canadian Olympic Committee and see what our options are. All right. Well, we'll wait to hear more then. Uh, Wayne, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good. Uh, thanks for having me and have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You may remember earlier this week, we were talking about the inaugural Canada Beer Cup. This was so cool. This was craft breweries from right across the country competing against each other. And BC did very, very well. And when I was looking over the list, couldn't help but notice there were quite a few awards won by KPU. And I was like, wait a minute, Kwantlen Polytechnic University is winning awards for beer What is this? Well, they have a brewing and brewery operations program. They ended up winning three medals in the inaugural Canada Beer Cup. So how did they do that? How do you even 
learn how to make beer? What are they teaching people about that? Well, we're going to find out right now. Brett Favreau is with us now, Dean of the Faculty of Science and Horticulture at KPU. Brett, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, and congratulations on this. Like, how long has this program been around? This program has been around since 2014 with the first cohort of students graduating in 2016. So it's developed a, a pretty good and strong history here. Okay, so I'm wondering, though, back in 2014, you're trying to launch, you're trying to convince KPU, like, hey, we need to launch a program about beer. How did that go over? Well, that was something that would have been handled by the previous dean, uh, because I'm relatively new at KPU. Um, and uh, But the thing is that the Faculty of Science and Horticulture, I mean, this is a polytechnic university. And so what we're trying to do at KPU is train students to pursue the careers that they want to pursue. And this may sometimes look a little different than what you see at a regular or at a more conventional university that has more of a different focus. And so it fits very nicely within that, this idea that we want to be training people. I mean, beer is a very scientific industry, like understanding how to actually brew a beer. It's biochemistry. It's all sorts of different procedures that that are rooted firmly in science. So it's it's a very comfortable fit. So tell me about the beers that won at the Canada Beer Cup. Yeah, so we had at KPU, we had three beers that actually won medals. And the interesting thing about all three of them was that they were all brewed by people that are either currently or uh, currently students or are recent graduates. So we had something called a, a Das Fest beer, which won gold, a Bira Rosa beer, which got bronze, both of which were brewed by second year students Ernesto Cabral and Freddy Nota Guzman. Uh, with guidance, of course, from faculty and staff. And then we had an Italian Pilsner, which won a bronze medal as well. And that was brewed by a recent grad, Phil Krinko. Okay. And what is the key here? Like when it comes to having different types of beer, as somebody who knows nothing about this, Brett, how do you do that? How do you play around with the flavors and the taste of it? It's, you know, it's a really interesting question. So I, I actually got the opportunity to do what they call a brew day a couple of weeks ago. As uh, as I said, I'm relatively new at KPU. And so the faculty and staff said, hey, new new dean, can you come and uh, work with us in the brewery? And so I actually got to go through a full day of this. And, and it's fascinating because it's very scientific. Before the day starts, you get your laptop out and there's a spreadsheet and you're calculating how much of each ingredient goes in. And you can predict from doing that what the endpoints are going to be, uh, you know, what, what the coloration of the beer is going to be, what the flavor is going to be. And then you go through a very uh, a very prescribed and step-by-step process where you're, you're down to the second. Like it has to be in this vessel for that amount of time and go into the next vessel for that amount of time. And if you mess any of the steps up, the beer doesn't turn out well. So when you see students producing medal winning beers at a, at, uh, at a, at an industry competition, you know, this isn't a different category for students. They're at the same level as any professional brewery. It speaks to the professionalism of, of the students and the faculty and the staff that are putting this program together, that they're able to compete at this level. And ultimately it's good for BC to have a, a robust community of brewers. Oh yeah. And it's so popular right now. So how creative can you be then, Brett, when, if it, you're talking about the science of it and spreadsheets and all that. So how do you get the creativity in there? So what's interesting is that once you, uh, and I'm learning more and more about this, once you actually settle on a recipe and you want to put it in a can, the creativity actually has to be curtailed a little bit because you're having to stick to a registered recipe. And so one of the things that the program does is it teaches people not just the science, but the operations and the, and the legal responsibilities and the regulations all around making beer. And, and they're very, very strict. So you sort of get that holistic education when you go through the program. And so they, they do still experiment. It's just 
just that those are the uh, those are the the recipes that aren't necessarily canned. So they'll when you if you come to KPU in Langley on Fridays, you can buy beer. You can buy whatever has been brewed up recently from the program. Really? But you, but it goes into yeah, it goes into a growler. It goes into a bottle. So yeah, you can come on by it's Langley uh, on the afternoons on Fridays, uh, the Langley campus of KPU, and yeah, you can come and try these different beers. Okay, so what is the big challenge? Like my understanding from what I do know is that consistency is the key, and that's the hardest thing to really get going when it comes to making beer. That's absolutely right, and and the cleaning. I mean, this is what what shocked me when I uh, you know did this brew day with the faculty and staff is that you're spending at least as much time cleaning as you are actually brewing, and you have to clean with the correct chemicals, the correct substances, and you have to do it all in the right order. You have to flush the lines from one end to the other. And again, if you miss one step, that next batch that you brew is going to be no good. So when we see students winning these awards at these industry events, it shows that this KPU program, I mean, this is something where you're getting a very hands-on education and it's something that you're going to walk out and you're going to walk right into a job, whether you're creating your own job or working at uh, an established uh, brewery. But you got to love cleaning, it sounds like. Well, that's part of the job, yeah. And I made sure, you know, I, I'm I'm not above doing that as the dean myself. And I said to them, "Look, I want to be doing whatever you would have anyone else do." And so we had we had a good cleaning session after that. I love that. Okay, so then, Brett, where can people find out more information? Best place is always the website, uh, kpu.ca/brew. And I would also call attention to any of our programs in the Faculty of Science and Horticulture. This one. Uh, is, is in the spotlight right now, but we have a lot of programs that have the same focus on, on, on vocational training. You come here, you'll learn the theory, but you're also going to learn the hands-on practice. And we would love to have you check out our website and potentially come for a campus tour. I love it. All right, Brett, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a lot of us certainly are flying once again, and Vancouver International Airport has had to ramp up from having, well, not a lot of passengers in, you know, during the pandemic to really starting to see those numbers come back up to what we saw either even before the pandemic or going beyond that. So how is YVR going to handle all of this? Well, we did get a sign of that, and Tamara Vrooman joins us now, CEO of YVR, to talk more about that. Good morning, Tamara. Good morning, Timmy. It's pretty clear you've got some big plans going on at the airport. How busy is it these days? It's very busy. You know, we would say pre-pandemic, we used to celebrate 2 or 3% uh, annual growth. In fact, that was our annual growth between 2018 and 2019 pre-pandemic. But in the months from January to the end of August, our passenger volumes increased by a whopping 168%. And so travel is definitely back. We've had a few growing pains, but uh, I'm pleased with our performance over the summer. Now, I know that you've been announcing some plans and things like, is the airport on the verge of even more expansion? Is there room to do that right now? There certainly is in terms of we built out a brand new international terminal. Unfortunately, it was completed and opened in the middle of the pandemic in September of 2020. So we have a brand new, beautiful terminal that's uh, waiting to be used. So we certainly have lots of capacity there. We also have been using some digital technology. Uh, You may have seen that in terms of moving people faster, giving them options through the airport that allows us to control the flow. 
And we made some investment in our baggage system, which is a key part of making sure that the bag gets with the passenger to the right place at the right time. So we've made some key investments that are really helping our performance. We had some growing pains due to some labor shortages, but largely our performance has been better than uh, almost all airports in North America. Yeah, what can people expect then, Tamara, if they're heading, if they're flying, and we are heading into that busy holiday season soon, right? So what can people expect? We still are asking people to come a little early to the airport just to make sure that uh, you've got enough time to get through the CATSA pre-board screening and uh, onto your flight. Uh, It's absolutely fine to be checking bags. I know people are going on holidays with gifts, things like that, want to make sure that it gets to the right place. We've made some very significant investments in our baggage system, and we've had over 99% outbound baggage performance throughout the summer, so we're very confident in that. Um, Do take a little extra time, though, two hours before a domestic flight, up to three hours before an international flight, just to make sure you can clear through the processes But we've got lots of technology, lots of people to help you navigate in a really easy and sort of customer-friendly way. Right. One of the things I've been hearing about, though, Tamara, is is international tourism. Like, yes, domestic has come back. And I think U.S., you know, tourism is definitely on par to come back. But what about international tourism? Certainly, we've seen a huge increase in domestic travel. You know, we're over 100%, 105%, 107% some days in the summer of what we were pre-pandemic. You're correct. U.S. travel is back 85%. International travel actually is doing quite well to uh, some Asian destinations, to Japan, to Korea, Australia, New Zealand doing really well and also to Europe. The one part of the market that's different than it was pre-pandemic internationally is China. You know, we're only seeing about 3% of our uh, uh, travel from Hong Kong, Taiwan, and mainland China that we saw pre-pandemic. But India is doing really well. We have new routes uh, to Istanbul and some more coming into the Middle East. And so other parts of Asia are doing very, very well. But of course, for, uh, for geopolitical reasons, and uh, COVID protocols, uh, China really hasn't come back yet. So do we think, is this like a time to pivot then? Is this a time to say, okay, how are we going to make up that that loss now? Well, we certainly, uh, when you see the StatsCan data that just came out a couple of days ago, we see that uh, international uh, immigration to our country and to our region has really changed. So five years ago, it was more, mostly coming from China, now mostly from India. We at the airport need to follow those trends to make sure that we're providing access to the people that uh, need to come here and need to connect through here. So we definitely see opportunities to expand our service to markets like India. In fact, there's huge demand for travel to India, but only Air India can fly at the moment because of the closure of Russian airspace. If that hopefully uh, alleviates in the future, there's lots of opportunity there. So we're definitely still open uh, to serve China. I just don't think it's going to be quite the same percentage of our international traffic. But the good news is there's lots of opportunity. We've got a brand new terminal. And so we're very excited about the future. And now I understand as well, like we're talking about cargo space and we know that it's a huge thing, right? Shipping cargo. Uh, we've talked a lot about that moving goods around Metro Vancouver. Is, is YVR getting into that? I understand you freed up some space to do that. Absolutely. One of the things we did during the pandemic was we took a look at our needs, our business needs end to end for the next uh, 50 years. And we made a significant change to our land use plan, which was approved by 
the local governments of the city of Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, and the city of Richmond, as well as the government of Canada and uh, Musqueam, to really change our land use plan to free up about 400 acres of industrial land uh, on the north of our airport and another 800 acres of commercial land Uh, on the south. Both of those can be used to support our cargo and logistics operations as well as provide much needed access to a land base for light manufacturing and other things for the region. We're pretty excited about that. Represents about eight billion dollars in developed value and uh, we think that can be a major win for us in terms of the movement of goods particularly in cargo but also provide much needed space and support for the rest of the region. Yeah that's pretty big so when will that kind of go into development? We've already had some conversations. There's lots of interest, as you might imagine. Industrial land is very rare in uh, in Metro Vancouver, particularly one with such uh, excellent access to the airport and also with proximity to the U.S. border. Uh, we're making sure that we get the right partners, though, and the right context and build that out, again, in consultation with Musqueam. Uh, and so we've had lots of interest, but we haven't signed any deals yet. All right, we'll see what happens. Listen, thank you so much for updating us. Yeah, thanks very much. This is Mornings with Simi. We all have a bunch of streaming services that we subscribe to these days, don't we? And you're like, where is that show? Which streaming service is that on? What channel is that on? Where do I go to watch this show that everybody is talking about? Well, the cost of living continues to go up, up, and up. And now it turns out some Canadians are thinking that it's time to maybe cancel one of those subscriptions. Well, joining us now to talk more about that is Shachi Curl, president of Angus Reid. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what kind of decisions are we making about our budget these days? Well, we know, because we've been talking about this a lot, you and I, that um, we're seeing increasing number of people uh, looking to trim back their household budgets, looking for efficiencies. And, uh, you know, it's not just uh, the sobering news uh, that we heard yesterday about 1.5 million food bank visits. I mean, that's when we talk about people who've got to really cut back on the essentials, the staples, if you will. But, you know, one of the first things to go when you're trying to save a bit of money is actually the non-essentials. It's the discretionary spending. It is the two to four to five streaming platforms that you might have. And you're asking yourself, do I really need all of these? So that's what we're seeing. One in three who are uh, who in the last six months say that they have dropped a streaming service and about half of those people saying it was entirely due to the cost of living. Oh boy. And yet at the same time, we get notices that a lot of these are, they're raising their prices too. Well, that may be a driver. So uh, regardless of whether people are, are experiencing that cost of living crunch or pinch today or they're hearing about the fact that, oh, prices might be going up, password sharing may be something that people uh, are cracked down upon, uh, or, or even the fact that advertising might be introduced. That Those may also be factors playing into it. I think it is notable that it's not just cost of living, although half is a really significant number, who, uh, that, that is uh, driving people to drop some of their, uh, hmm. their services. Uh, others just say, look not watching them anymore or, or there's nothing on to watch or I've, I've just got too many. So the craze uh, for the craves, if you will, is something that, uh, that is starting to perhaps 
not be quite as new, shiny, informative, entertaining as it used to be. That is so interesting. Was there any kind of age breakdown? Like, was there a particular age demographic that was more likely to be doing this? It had more to do at this stage with income, frankly, than it did with uh, with age. But where we really see very big differences along age demographics is less about current streaming services and more about what people are doing with their over-the-air television. And uh, and that, you know, so, so the short-term trend on streaming is that more people are, are trimming back. The long-term trend is this is really the way things are going uh, in the long term with the number of people who are uh, either giving up landline, sorry, not landline, but yeah, cable landlines or satellite uh, cable providing services um, or, or who never had them to begin with. And the demographics on that, Simi, are really quite remarkable with older Canadians over the age of 55, 65, those who are most likely to still or still pay for cable TV or satellite TV for traditional over-the-air programming versus those who are, are much more likely to say in, in younger uh, age demographic cohorts, saying, you know what, we never actually had a subscription or I only watch over-the-air TV at my parents' house. Right. What about content? How much of a role did that play? Uh, content was, um, it, it was something of a driver, but again, uh, in a way where people were inclined to say, look, I'm either going to stick with a streaming service because specifically there's a show that I want to watch, or um, more likely people were saying that uh, that they were dropping one of their platforms just again because they weren't watching it because because they weren't interested in the shows that were on that platform or that there was a specific show on that platform that they enjoyed that's, that's been taken offline. Right. So this also, it sounds to me like, you know, these streaming services have to be very careful, Shachi. Like you mentioned Netflix there and, you know, they're trying all sorts of new things like bringing in the commercials. And if they start charging people for sharing their password outside their household, like that could lead to a backlash, couldn't it? Because from your survey, it shows people clearly pay attention to these things. They're very, they're very price sensitive. They are sensitive. And remember, people loved their streaming services for the the privilege of being commercial free, right? Like if we just wanted to watch TV off the internet, we could watch YouTube. Or if we just wanted to watch programming with uh, with advertising, we'd watch regular television. So the novelty, it, it wasn't just offering up nine bazillion different programs. It was also that these programs... Uh, were, you know, the whole thing about binging. It was binge-worthy, no commercial breaks to to wake you up after three hours of, of watching this stuff. Um, so this this is something people are going to be sensitive to. Uh, so let's let's see uh, what the what the streaming services do uh, and who handles uh, and, and and manages these issues maybe a little bit more astutely, a little bit more carefully, right. uh, and and who ends up bearing the brunt. So interesting. Shachi, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thanks for having me.